Max Jordan Nguemeni Tiako is a fourth-year medical student out of five at the Yale School of Medicine and hosts his own podcast, Flip the Script, about healthcare disparities. He starts out discussing how some of what we learn about race being a risk factor for some diseases are actually a product of social construct, not genetic predisposition. We then discuss racial disparities in substance use, disorder treatment, and then pivot from health disparities to physician training disparities. We learn about the hardships faced by minority medical students from microaggressions from students and faculty to disparities in grading and how this can affect career trajectory. He ends up by discussing some of the pearls he has learned from his own podcast. Mr. Tiako grew up in Yaoundé, Cameroon, and moved to the U.S. to attend Howard University, got a B.S. in civil and environmental engineering, and then a master's in bioengineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. He is currently doing research connecting his civil environmental engineering background to identify elements of urban design that can be leveraged to improve health outcomes and move the needle towards health equity. His research fellowship is at the Center for Emergency Care and Policy Research at the University of Pennsylvania. He spends his free time, doesn't sound like there's much, writing about racism and medical education in the medical student magazine In Training. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. This episode is brought to you by Orange County Bookkeepers Healthcare Accounting an all-in-one accounting firm for small healthcare businesses and private medical practices. One thing that I personally love about OCB accountants is that they are QuickBook professionals with over 20 years' experience focusing specifically on healthcare. They utilize a tailored approach individualized to your needs. They're a full-service bookkeeping firm specializing in accounting, payroll, taxes, and financial planning. And for our listeners, for a limited time, they are offering 25% off their services for the first three months. You can visit them at ocbmed.com, that's O-C-B-M-E-D, or call at 833-671-3873 or 949-215-6200. And check out the show notes for more information. Max Jordan Gomini Tiako, thanks so much for being on the show today. Brad, thank you so much for having me. So... Why was it necessary to make your podcast? Why did you feel compelled? You're a busy medical student. You have enough on your plate, enough studying to do, uh, all the rest of the responsibilities that comes with a medical student. Yes, yet you decided you were compelled to create this podcast. Why was it necessary? Why is it so important to tell this story? For me, you know, I listened to a lot of podcasts. And while in medical school, that was one of the ways I just sort of entertained myself. and one of the sort of struggles in med school so far have been that the quality of our education when it comes specifically to health inequities isn't particularly great just about anywhere across the country. Uh, And so, you know, a lot of times as a Black medical student, and and I am sure other minority medical students may identify with this, you know, we found ourselves either engaging in conversations with our colleagues related to um, health disparities, especially for those instances where perhaps some of our colleagues have 
lesser exposure or lesser awareness to issues related to racism, inequality in this country. And some of those conversations can be taxing depending on the type of setting. For example, in med school, where I go to school at Yale, we have an ethics and professional responsibility course. And some of those sessions, health inequities come up, uh, or in our public health and epidemiology course, or even in our main lecture, some, you know, sometimes you know, one of the lecturer may be giving a lecture, say, on glaucoma, and then nearing the end, after we've talked about the pathophysiology and the pharmacology, all the sort of like basic science and clinical aspects of a disease, a little bit of epidemiology gets presented. And race as a sort of, uh, how do you call that? Race as a risk factor is often presented alongside other risk factors that are not social constructs, like say, for example, for glaucoma, history of diabetes. And so the sort of conflation of race as a biological factor when truly it's more of a social construct and that race by itself is isolated by itself. Race isn't so much a risk factor, but rather exposure to racism really made me want to share more of this with the world in a way that didn't feel as taxing as as it was the case early on in med school, sort of like repeatedly engaging in this very, very much the same conversation over and over. So you're saying it's not like, say, Tay-Sachs, right? So right. Like Ashkenazi Jews, they have this mutation where if two people with this mutation get married, they have, uh, you know, a quarter chance of having a child that has Tay-Sachs, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this is being a Jew, right, myself, we still don't, we don't know, like, is it a race? Is it a religion? Is it a culture? Is it a, fine, whatever. But that being said, right, that is genetic. So what you're saying is when the professor is saying that being African-American puts you at higher risk for a glaucoma, you, what you're saying is it's not something inherent to the genetics of that individual. It is things that occur in society that put them at higher risk of glaucoma. Well, so specific to glaucoma, what I would say is the evidence isn't clear. And so the way it's often presented, it's as if it is clear, right? So for example, you're right. Like, so illness like Tay-Sachs disease, well, yes, we know about the genetics and truly those sort of genetic or things that have been shown to be linked to a specific allele are more so related to like ancestry, right? So for example, sickle cell disease is more prevalent among people from um, sub-Saharan ancestry. Like I'm, I grew up in Cameroon. I know so many people who had sickle cell disease and part, you know, because of the sickle, the sickle cell trait and the theory that says the sickle cell trait is supposed to be protective against malaria. So that by itself, right, should not be conflated with the fact with like with black race in the context of being in America. And even then, right, so the sickle cell trait is as common in some parts of the Mediterranean, you know, in some countries or regions of, country, uh, of countries that are adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea. But then you have social factors like access to premarital counseling that are way more, you know, prevalent in, say, most parts of like Spain and Greece that aren't the case in, say, in Cameroon. And, and of course, then if you don't have access to premarital counseling, the likelihood of two people with the uh, sickle cell trait, you know, having children together is way higher. So it's not as straightforward as sometimes we make it seem in the way we, we teach race and genetics. And then the other thing is just about your average African-American has like something like 25% Caucasian ancestry, right? And the way race is defined in the US is a self-identified thing, right? Like, so you have African-Americans like who self-identify as Black, like Barack Obama, who 
is, however, biracial, right? Just the way race is constructed in this country is more around how you're perceived, how you self-identify, and the history of like the one-drop rule. And that by itself cannot be used to teach medical genetics, if that makes any sense. Yeah, because the way you perceive someone, if you're then using it to weigh their risks of having a certain problem, might not be genuinely something that should be weighed in there. Right. It's not scientific. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I can see where where that would get taxing because you're hearing it from an authority over and over. And each time you want to raise your hand and be like, yeah, kind of shake them. Be like that. It's just, it's not that straight. It's not, stop saying that. I keep hearing that over and over. And so your best platform for communicating that information was creating your podcast. Yep, exactly. Because there are people that want to hear and there are people that don't, right? There are people that, that just want to continue living the way that they've been living and thinking the way that they've been thinking and not have something change their mind because this is what they know and this is what's been working for them. And yeah, I'm sure you encounter that all the time in, in your, uh, where you'll, you'll start talking about something and then you encounter resistance. Yes, that's also the case. But I will say, right, in the context of medical education, it's important that we get taught what's true. Uh, And this is a debate that comes up a lot, sort of like, how do you change the minds of the um, quote, quote, unquote, old guard way of how medicine was taught versus how it should be taught today as we have so much more advances, you know, when it comes to social science and medicine. Um, So certainly the podcast itself allows me to disseminate, um, you know, the work of other social, social scientists and epidemiologists and physicians and all these people who do fantastic work related to health disparities. It also makes it such that if I ever get in a discussion um, about a, any given topic with someone who, you know, may be skeptical because I maybe sometimes as a Black medical student, there's a perception that my position may be biased because I'm Black and, and thus I, you know, have a quote-unquote conflict of interest. So we're like, well, there's an anthropologist who did this very work and I'll send you the link because she was a guest on my podcast. And that kind of ends it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You have a bibliography. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And you know, something that I've found an advantage in my podcast is if I have a question, I can just you, find an expert on it and invite them onto the show. And then there you go. I, <laughs> I get my answer, right? Yeah, exactly. And I've gotten so, to learn a lot by doing this myself. So, so that's that was going to be one of the things that we can discuss. Excellent segue. So, what are the what are the some of the issues that that you've discussed that you maybe weren't aware of before that have been particularly enlightening? So, some of the things that you've learned from your podcast. My first guest was Professor Carolyn Roberts, the Yale College in History and Africana Studies. She studied the role that physicians played in the British transatlantic slave trade and as well as the sort of birth of the pharmaceutical industry way back during the slave trade. Like, for example, one of the things that I learned is the, the pharmaceutical industry that we know today and the sort of like context of mass production of medication came out of, actually was sort of born out of the out of the transatlantic slave trade where they were, how do you call it, apothecaries? I don't know how to pronounce that well. Uh, nope, you apothe- got it. Apothecaries. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so for example, GlaxoSmithKline traces its roots all the way back to slavery. Or for example the medical examination that physicians had to perform on those that were captured and you know at the coast of the african continent and then brought onto the boats and how you know physicians had to sort of force them to remain alive you know there was a lot of force feeding that happened on these boats uh, or ships i guess i should say lots of force feeding making sure that people remained as healthy as possible and 
There, interestingly, you know, what Professor Roberts describes, because a lot of her work was archival, you know, she went to the UK and dug up letters that some of these physicians wrote back to their wives um, in the UK about what they were doing. And some of them were conflicted about what they were up to, but there was such a good financial incentive while poverty may have been breaking a back in the UK that they felt like, well, you know, this is what I got to do. And it speaks to the, at least to me as a medical student now, right? Like thinking about the Hippocrates oaths, uh, oath, right? Like wh- who are we, what is our allegiance to, to our pockets or to the, or to people and people that we're meant to serve and society. So that's one of the things that I've really, like it, it really sat with me after I did that recording. Another set sort of like learning experiences for me amongst all my episodes was about this concept of a two-tiered system of addiction treatment that we have in the U.S. And the guest, the first guest I had on this was uh, Professor Helena Hansen. She's a psychiatrist and anthropologist at NYU. And this was the first time I had to like travel somewhere to interview, I guess, and it was really exciting. So basically, you know, the U.S. has a history of um, splitting how we treat uh, opioid addiction, right? Methadone versus buprenorphine, where buprenorphine is basically, uh, you know, the partial agonist to the mu receptor versus methadone, which is a full agonist. And as it turns out, buprenorphine is more accessible in areas that are richer, um, have more white people, less black people, less Hispanic people, and people that are more pri- more likely to be privately insured. And methadone is more, you know, accessible to black and Hispanic people. And just the nature of how people access methadone versus buprenorphine is really there's a stark difference there. This concept of the carceral state, but you know, but not within carceral institutions, shows up in the provision of methadone. Right, you have to show up to a clinic every single day. If somebody has to watch you take your medication, and you have to you know pee in a cup for a daily urine drug test. Um, I mean, some people do eventually sort of quote unquote gain the trust of their provider and get to be able to I don't know get a month a week's worth of supply of methadone as opposed to showing up to the clinic every day. But overall, it's a very invasive and intrusive process. And it's almost like when Foucault wrote about the carceral state and how it sort of like diffuses throughout society, he thought about how methadone will be provided. Whereas with buprenorphine, you know, you can go to your doctor, like you you go get, I don't know, your prescription for, I don't know, an SSRI. And then you go to the pharmacy and then you pick it up like, the, you know, it, it, prov- it provides some level of privacy and normalcy that being a methadone patient just doesn't. And it's highly racialized. And um, that's one of the favorite episodes in terms of just how much I learned from talking to Professor Henson. That's interesting. You would think if there's a method of treating something that is in an economically disadvantaged area, you're doing it in a way that costs more, right? Like, because all the, the it's very labor intensive to have people come in and it just, it, it, like from an economic standpoint, if it just doesn't, it doesn't doesn't make sense. Doesn't you know, make sense. I have actually never thought about that until now. I mean, you know, methadone was introduced in like the 70s and BUP wasn't FDA approved for opioid disorder until like 2002. And before then, people were sort of using it and prescribing it off-label. So I think part of it may be the sort of latency with, you know, people getting with the times. But even then, most recently, New York State just uh, disagreed. I think maybe the governor vetoed it. I can't remember the detail behind it. But basically, the state legislature and the governor's mansion in the state of New York got in the way of making sure that buprenorphine will be equally as uh, accessible as methadone, basically cementing the the existing system that is in New York State right now, especially in New York City. Um, 
Yeah, I haven't thought much, and I should dig that up. Like, sort of, how much does it cost to oper- operationalize a, a methadone clinic versus buprenorphine provision? But I also understand, to an extent, right, why you have if you if you need methadone, I suppose if you need methadone and you need to show up to a clinic every day, methadone is a full agonist, and there is a risk of overdose, and so the sort of provision, some of it may be too much, um, but some of it may be of like rationalizable. But as long as methadone and buprenorphine as, uh, are equally available, I think that this sort of notion of opportunity of choice for patients doesn't necessarily exist for Black and Hispanic patients, especially if they're low income. And just to be clear, so to, to the listeners, you're a medical student. I'm an otolaryngologist. Neither of us have expertise in the differences between these two medications. So you know, I think we went. We I think we should change focus a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I got two in the weeds. Part of my research is on addiction. By the way, uh, oh, so you do so have some expertise be- in that? Okay. Yeah, I got to become an addiction researcher basically after having learned so much from Dr. Hansen. Yeah, so I should have probably said that earlier. That is something that allowed you to uh, kind of springboard into that area. Yeah. So something that you are an, uh, also are an expert right now is being a student. And so one of your episodes was bigot your way to success. Mm-hmm. I just thought that that term was, was interesting, right? And really telling of, you know, standardized tests. So right. what does that mean? And what, is, what are some of the things that you guys talked about on that episode? So bigot your way to success. Uh, it's kind of a joke, like an online running joke that, that's been going on for a while now. And if, if you Google bigot your way to success, there's like a list of a bunch of racial stereotypes that are known to show up on the USMLE standardized test, both step one and step two. So for example, you know, if you get like a question about a young, I don't know, 35 year old black woman who's coming in with a dry cough, you don't even need to read the whole paragraph. You <laughs> kind of know that, oh, this is going to be about sarcoidosis. Sarcoid, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> there are several of those. You talked about Tay-Sachs disease earlier when you, you know, like you just kind of and when they tell you, oh, this person is like French Canadian or like those stereotypes are very much ingrained in both in how medical, our medical curricula are designed, but also ultimately how the standardized test. Uh, I don't know whether it's kind of like to give us freebies, um, but at the end of the day, it, I, I feel sometimes it can contribute to reinforcing stereotypes such that, you know, some diseases may end up being underdiagnosed in some populations because we don't always even have the presence of expanding our differential diagnosis just based on this kind of statistical discrimination. Oh, yeah. You don't know what you don't know about this person. And, and I'll give exactly. you a good example. My wife's father is Black and her mother is an Ashkenazi Jew. So to look mm-hmm. at her, you know, most people look at her and, and think she's black. Some people look at her and think she's Dominican, but most people look at her and they think black. And so, mm-hmm. you know, she could be a carrier for Tay-Sachs. Right. We were, we were tested. We have three kids. And so we, we, she, did, she wasn't. But like, if you were looking at that multiple choice test and looked at her, right, you would not test this person for Tay-Sachs. That's not going to be the way you're going to answer that question. So, you know, so you don't know, you don't know what you don't know about this person's history. Mm -hmm. And and my advisor, my academic advisor always tells the story of a patient who had cystic fibrosis, black kid. And this is in a day where sometimes like x-rays would be printed out. And for weeks, no one would figure out what's going on with this kid. And uh, someone else looked at the x-ray without knowing the history, without knowing this patient's history and was just like, oh, who's, who's the kid with CF just by looking at the x-ray? 
And it hadn't crossed the medical, you know, the medical team's mind at the time because it was like, oh, you have a black kid with this lung issue. No one is thinking about cystic fibrosis because we it's so ingrained in us to think CF is for white people, sickle cell is for black people, sarcoidosis is for black. That's kind of those are the stereotypes of um, medical licensure exams. And my guest on that episode is uh, Dr. Jenny Tsai. She's an emergency medicine resident at Yale. And I met her while she was still doing this work as a med student as well. So she's done some studies that kind of fine comb through the curriculum of the medical school over at, um, at Brown when, where she trained and wrote some papers about the need for introduction of critical race theory and med- medical school curricula, right? Thinking about how race is constructed. Racism is constructed and how it affects um, disease and uh, inequality and those types of things. And I think, you know, with that kind of approach where we embrace the social sciences and what they have to offer medical education, education, then we ultimately gain, right, from being just better trained physicians. That, that's basically what that episode was about. So before we move on, are there are there any other particular lessons that you've learned from your episodes that you think bear mentioning? I, there's so many. <laughs> I one think, more, one more nugget. Uh, well, so episode specific, I think my episode, so I did two episodes about reproduction, especially Black um you know, related to Black women. And I interviewed uh, Professor Bridges, Kiara Bridges, she's an anthropologist, and uh, Professor Roberts, Jyoti Roberts. So she wrote Killing the Black Body and Kiara Bridges wrote uh, Reproducing Race. And they both talk about ways in which the medical apparatus, uh, along with the instruments of the state, and state by, by state, I mean capital S state, have this element of control over reproduction especially of Black women. So Kiara Bridges' work at the time I I interviewed her centered around the experience of low-income Black women on Medicaid in New York City who basically felt a lot that their experience seeking prenatal care was a lot more invasive uh, compared to the experience of uh, women who are not on Medicaid just because a lot of the testing and a lot of the questioning and a lot of the things that are required of pregnant women during prenatal care are mandated, whereas it's not the case for women who are on more, you know, private insurance. And Professor Roberts' uh, work, of, you know, on killing a black body and our conversation in general was about the criminalization of black women um, during pregnancy. You know, we talked about how, uh, you know, during the crack cocaine epidemic, Epidemic, you know, black women were punished really harshly for using during pregnancy. And today, in the context of the opioid epidemic, some of the laws that were put in place during the, you know, around um, drug use during pregnancy are basically now sort of like reverberating and affecting pregnant women who are using opioids. In fact, Yara Bridges just wrote a paper in the Harvard Law Review about opioid use disorder, pregnancy, and how using drugs in this new context actually can erode one's white privilege. So just fantastic work. I'm so lucky to have just been able to sit and ask them questions. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a great medium. It's a great medium. It really allows us to put ourselves in, some, in, in front of some incredible people and uh, yeah. yourself included, yourself included. <laughs> I appreciate you doing, taking the time. a learner. Or sort of well, we're all learners. We're all learners. So, okay. So yeah. one thing we're, we, we were going to talk about was your experience as a learner, right? So mm-hmm. we were going to talk about interpersonal racism as a medical student and institutional racism as a medical student. So mm-hmm. what can you tell us? Let's, let's start with interpersonal racism. How does that affect medical students specifically? So I think the interpersonal racism in med school, it's kind of twofold, both like experiencing it and also witnessing it. And by experiencing it, I mean like sort of 
in one-on-one encounters with classmates, residents, colleagues, even lecturers, and then witnessing it, so being wielded against classmates or even wielded against patients directly or indirectly. And so for me in med school, I've had, you know, and they haven't necessarily been like the most egregious forms of quote-unquote interpersonal racism in terms of like what's happened to me. But at the time, some you know, it, it can feel like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. So a good example, my first year, Terrence Crutcher, among many black men, were killed by the police. And, you know, some classmates went to a protest. I, I didn't go, actually. I had to be at the VA and then come back to campus. And the VA is not, not super close. So after they went to this Black Lives Matter rally, you know, in their white coat, as physicians often do when they go to political demonstrations, one of our classmates called, like, uh, how do you call that? Like a panel discussion around should physicians wear their white coats to protest? And it, it felt like a very clear, direct attack on those of us who did go to the rally, but in general, those of us who support Black Lives Matter. It wasn't like a direct, like, you guys, Black Lives don't matter, but it felt that way, right? It felt that clearly my classmate felt that even if I think Black Lives Matter, I need to, you know, I need to leave that stuff out before I come into medical school or into the classroom or whatever. And, it, and you know, some of us don't have that luxury. The, the activism that we engage in or the advocacy that we engage in isn't, only about our patients. It's like also about ourselves, right? Because like when I walk out of the hospital, I take that white coat off and I'm just another black dude that the police can pull over. And and that was probably one of the bigger things that I felt hurt about in med school as a first year. But, you know, the worst things that I've seen are more so around, you know, witnessing issues related to patient care, you know, seeing patients being labeled as quote-unquote medication-seeking, even though, you know, how can you tell? We can't read people's minds, you know? And it often happens around Black patient who was in a sickle cell pain crisis. Sorry, before you move on for that point, I just, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, as, as medical providers, right? I know people mm-hmm. hate that term, we're doctors, right? But we're under the umbrella of providers, doctors, nurses, mm-hmm. and other, other health professionals, right? Our goal is to help people, people live longer, better lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so something that plays an incredibly important role in living a long, healthy life is social determinants of health, mm-hmm. right? That determines health outcomes much more so than the Lipitor that we're prescribing, the hydrochlorothiazide for your blood pressure, right? So by wearing your white coat to a rally to help improve social determinants of health, it seems mm-hmm. to me a completely appropriate thing to do. Right. What was you the counter argument <laughs> to that? What is it that you heard that said, that someone said, why you shouldn't be doing that? Is it because it's political and you should leave politics out of medicine? Right. So that's one of the arguments that were made. Uh, and I think, you know, race in, or racism kind of ruffles, you know, still, still today ruffles people's feathers in ways that other political issues don't nearly as much, right? I have never... So as a med student, I was also part of this coalition that was for saving the Affordable Care Act. I did phone banking for funding for CHIP, you know, children's uh, insurance. No one's ever said, oh, leave your white coat before you go outside and do a, a demonstration for the Affordable Care Act. But the way insurance is decided in this country is a heavily political issue. But I think there's just a discomfort, right, with a lot of non-Black people when it comes to embracing the notion of racial justice that led to some people feeling like, oh, we got to have a conversation about this. I don't feel comfortable with people wearing Yale gear 
or their white coats at this demonstration. And rightfully, some of us were like, uh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, someone even suggested, well, what would you say if someone is wearing their white coat to a neo-Nazi rally, kind of making the false equivalence between neo-Nazis and the Black Lives Matter movement, which, um, you know, yeah, I don't even know what to say about that specific comparison, but yeah. So I think the counter argument would be if this person did that, there would have to, there would potentially be consequences. But they can find, feel free, do that. Right. However, if you are seen doing it, then, uh, you know, and you're in a program and your program director sees, like there, there are ramifications to, to, to doing that. And I would hope at least that there wouldn't be ramifications to doing that in something like Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, and I think a ton about, you know, the first do no harm, which is part of our oath, right? And this debate of physicians engaging with social responsibility and politics is as old as like the 1800s, right? When Verka was super engaged in Germany and, and like, you know, pushing the government to create a program for compulsory meat inspectations, right? That's how we found out about chicken. Like some may argue, oh, well, your job as a doctor is in a clinic room and not outside, but truly it's everywhere. It's no, beyond no, no. the here's, clinic room. Here's, here's what it is. Mm-hmm. If they agree with you, then it's your job to be involved in advocacy. Mm-hmm. And if they disagree with you, then you should leave the white coat at home. Right. That's, that's, yeah. that's, Best I think that's <laughs> it's just that's that's just what it is. It's whether they agree with your whatever you're doing. You know, it's the same way when like someone in Hollywood, right, says like, you know, Trump is terrible or Trump is amazing. And then, you know, if you dis- if you agree, you're like, yeah, I totally agree with this person. And if you disagree, you're like, you yeah, stick to singing or whatever. So I, th- <laughs> yeah, I think, exactly. I think, I think the same thing running. applies here, right? If they agree with you, yeah. then they think, great. If you wear your white coat, then it should, it gives you some more like authority and respectability of the institution that you then carry with you to this rally. And if you disagree, then you're, you know, abusing your privilege as a medical student. I, I, yeah, basically. My, 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 my personal take. Okay, so we were also going to discuss studies that you're familiar with that focus on racial climate for medical students and residents and, fa- and faculty. Um, and you were going to discuss that as well as disparities in grading and career advancement. So, so what, what can you tell us about just in general the, the racial climate for for trainees? Right. Um, So I think in general, you know, medical students, um, especially those who are uh, underrepresented in medicine, describe what seems to be a tense, often tense racial climate in medical school in that, you know, not necessarily feeling supported as minorities, um, you know, feeling a higher burden when it comes to contributing to educating our peers on matters of health equity or health inequities and facing kind of a barrage of microaggressions from peers, faculty, residents, and whatnot. And Sorry, some study- what, what's a microaggression? Because some of our listeners might uh, not be familiar with that term. Good point. I don't personally like using the term microaggression, but it's, it's, it's become well, just this sort of it. like more- Now you got to explain. I know. <laughs> so microaggressions are, are you know, considered to be slights that are typically not intentional based on a marker of difference that you may carry, but that land with a negative uh, impact and can leave like a lasting effect on the recipient of the microaggression. So for example, something that's as commonly told to Black people is like, oh my God, you sound, what is it? You sound so articulate, right? Which oftentimes is rooted in the assumption that you're not supposed to be articulate or that you don't you know, that you're, you're not supposed to uh, 
to sound educated as a black person, even though you may be still like in higher education. And a lot about microaggression is basically based on prior experiences as the recipient and also just having faced them over and over and kind of what the expectation and interpretation is. And, and I guess they're called micro only if the person who is uh, the perpetrator didn't intend to offend, but they still might, right? So, so if they um, intended it to offend, then it's a macro aggression. Oh, yeah. It's just like an, an aggression. Over, a total aggression, yeah, yeah. yes. Okay. So micro, <laughs> um, so it's based on it, the intent, not how it was received. Like if right, like bothered you the, a little makes it a microaggression versus micro value. It's 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 the intention of the person making the statement. Right. I think that's that's my understanding of the way the psychologist who who coined the term described it as. Yes. Yeah. Oddly enough, though, you know, there isn't. I mean, maybe there is, and I'm just not as familiar. But like in the in the in the literature regarding medical um, students' experiences, there's a, there's there's quite some about. My, you know, microaggressions. But I guess that's in part because those are way more common in these sophisticated, highly educated settings, right? People don't just call you the N-word. You know, by the time they've reached medical school, they know better. Or, you know what I mean? Like the things that are more macro and that may happen like in middle school or, you know, like happen a little less commonly in, in, in higher education. And perhaps that's why there's more of a focus on micro aggressions. That being said, though, there are some macro aggressions that still happen in that school. Yeah. And then how does that lead to, how does that affect outcomes like grading or career trajectory? Uh, so I think microaggressions by themselves, you know, the climate in general in medical school has an effect on medical students, like mental health, you know, uh, and, you know, feel, feeling burnt out and sort of like increasing rates of feeling socially isolated and not supported. And so you can think how that may have an impact on one's ability to, or just like one's even will to to do as well as they may have meant to initially from that sort of like intrinsic element of the experience as a medical student. But there's also, it, when I think about grading, what's been, what's out there literature-wise is that there are disparities in grading and, and they're more so rooted in the perception of the, those who do grade medical students. Because a lot of these studies basically kind of control for all the other things that are more intrinsic to the students, like sort of like your performance, right? How did you do on step one? How did you uh, do on those kind of like objective metrics that have nothing to do with a third party deciding whether you get honors versus high pass or pass? And for example, the comments that students get in their in their evaluations oftentimes are racialized and gendered. So there's a study that was done at Yale by one of my mentors, my mentor, I mean a few of my mentors actually, Dr. Butwright and Dr. Nunez Smith and the rest of their team. There's a large team that looked at letters. How do you call those? MSBE, the, med, the the big letter that goes out when you apply to residency. I'm not there yet. And they look at comments from your from clerkship grades, and the most the letters that are are more likely to have those superlatives, you know, excellent. Uh, those kind of terms are way more likely to go to uh, white male medical students. And black male medical students are more likely to be sort of just labeled as uh, competent, maybe like hard worker, but never those superlatives that program directors tend to look for. And then women get labeled as caring, you know, kind of this sort of kind of benevolent sexism that often shows up where the, the qualities of the students are highlighted based oftentimes on race and gender. And then when you think about career advancement opportunities, like AOA, Alpha Omega Alpha, right? Lucky, I mean, I don't know whether that's lucky or not, but we don't have an AOA chapter at my medical school, but the same team that 
did this study on uh, MSPE content, looked at resident applicants that, uh, that submitted uh, applications to Yale. So something like maybe 15,000 medical students from across the country. And they found that when you control for grades, step one scores, like, you know, all the kind of the semi-objective, because I don't really think they're all that objective, but the number of things um, that Black and Asian medical students are six times less likely still to be inducted in AOA at their homes, you know, their home institutions. And, you know, some program directors filter applications by AOA, by, you know, AOA status. And it's a huge thing to think that six times, you know, my take on that is there are people that are eligible on AOA typically based on their, I guess, ranking in their medical school class. Like, you know, are you in the top whatever quartile it is at different institution? And then there's a body of student members that that often have to vote on, on induction membership, whatever, based on, I don't know, some criteria set within the school. And, you know, you can imagine that some of it is basically kind of a popularity contest. And it's kind of telling that those who are way less likely to make it into AOA are Black and Asian students, you know, kind of like least likely to look white, I guess, or like to present or potentially present as white. That's kind of my read on that. If you ask me, it's kind of racist. <laughs> and the stuff, I don't know if kind of is, is uh, <laughs> necessary I, in that statement. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is it, it affects your grades. Right mm-hmm. uh, in in that and that can be that's been studied for right that's what you're citing right. is is that if you blind you know if you blind someone to to what this person uh, looks like as much as possible by just doing the objective multiple choice tests that we all have to take and we're all then it really the data really seems to speak for itself and so that I think if you turn if you think of things in terms of like and I heard actually Jamie Fox once refer to himself as the arrow and his grandma was the bow. So I, I, I thought that was a great analogy for the way that my wife and I are raising our kids. We just, we're aiming the bow and the, the arrow is going to go or the arrow is going to go. Um, Got it. But if, you're, if your career trajectory is like, is the bow pointing in a certain direction, if you're already starting at a lower angle because this is keep preventing you, this, now you're getting lower grades pre- because you're being described this way, your letter of recommendation aren't as compelling. You're not. You're less likely to get an AOA. This, if we're talking in terms of career trajectory, where you're going to end up 20, 30 years from now, you've already aimed the bow in a different direction. Right. And there's no quantity. I mean, there's like no exact way of being able to sort of quantify that. I guess uh, unless we were to kind of look at things in the perspective, like a huge perspective cohort. I mean, there is a cohort out there. I don't know what questions they ask the participants, but the the change that does a lot of studies on like bias and microaggressions and whatnot uh, amongst medical students was a cohort that initially enrolled like 5,000 med students across the country and they followed them. And I think they're now third-year residents. So I'm... You know, I, I'm curious to see when they'll make some of the some of the questions that they've asked available, and 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 how far one could ask, like, oh, what? How did the trajectory of some of these students change based on their experiences with uh, with racism and whatnot in that school? And I'll give you an anecdote in terms of both the grading and some of the you know the gatekeeping structures that may exist. So I had an experience where. Uh, and it's so rare. I had a black male resident uh, in a longitudinal clinic, and I was, and you know, supervised by an attending who was white. And during that time, it, it was a weekly clinic, and most of the time on clerkships, you know, you spend a lot of your time with with the resident, and not so much with the attending. Uh, and this resident, at the end, and we had great, you know, great working rapport. You know, every day at the end of clinic, I would maybe spend fifteen minutes sorting up with the attending. 
at the end of the clerkship, uh, this resident wrote me a super long, very good evaluation. I mean, I, I, I was beaming with pride, uh, even though he submitted it late. And the attending on his end wrote nothing in the part of the evaluation that's supposed to go in my transcript, literally wrote nothing. So he saw nothing that's worth talking about me and, and, and what would end up being my MSG letter. So I emailed my clerkship director because this resident had turned it his, uh, turned his evaluation late. Like, hey, you know, do you think we can uh, also add the resident's evaluation just for more text in my eval? And, you know, it, this is a rotation that I honored anyways, and I did really well overall. Um, so there was no change. There was no grade issue. I just wanted those comments to also appear. And the response was, well, for that specific clinic, we really just wanted comments from the attending and not so much from the residents. I knew it so well anyways that it doesn't matter. Now, imagine if I didn't do well and that the structure is that we just want comments from the attending. And the attending pays me no mind, but the one time that I do get a Black resident, his eval doesn't even make it you know, into my transcript. That's sort of like dwindling representation amongst who supervises us has an impact ultimately on what are, what are, you know, what are, uh, how do you call that? What our MSPs or transcripts or whatever are going to look like. I spent an entire year on the war. I never had a black attending who was going to give me a grade. I had a few black residents. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, that, that sums it up in terms of your experience. I, no, it sums it up. I think it's very telling in terms of your experience, right? One or no black attendings, a few black residents. And so this is what, this is what you're, experiences like, and as opposed to students of other backgrounds who are able to look and see people who look like them in all sorts of specialties. So, so mm-hmm. when you, when you see, let's say you did have one black attending, right? Mm-hmm. How do you think that would affect your decision with regards to the specialty? Do you think that would in, that would alter your decision making. I mean, it's hard because you're, 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 you're. It's hard to take yourself out of the situation and look at it objectively. But I mean, generally, if you're on a rotation and your your attending and residents are jerks, you're less likely to go into that specialty. You're not going to have a good experience. Whereas, even if it's maybe not the right fit for you, if you have a specialty where where you have a great time because you're getting along with everybody, you're more likely to go into that specialty. So what about your situation where there are very few people who look like you and yet you have one, maybe two in other specialties? How do you think that will alter your decision making in terms of what you ultimately choose? I think for me, it probably wouldn't because there's, like you said, there are so few and just about every specialty, right? So it's, so the bets are like almost non-existent, but uh, I think it would make the experience better in that one. As a student on that rotation, I maybe I, I'll spend a little less time worrying whether the feedback or criticism that I'm getting from the attending is like from a place of assumption of inferiority. That sometimes we just kind of have to wonder, like, oh, this is attending, think I'm dumb, right? Like that doesn't tend to be the case when you have another black attending. They may hold you. They may even be, I have just from having conversations with other peers that sometimes the black attending or even resident may hold you to a higher standard because they want you to, uh, there's this linked fit in making sure that you do well. And and we've all kind of been, in, it's all been ingrained in us that you have to be twice as good to have it half as uh, half as good. That's kind of like a saying that, just about every black parent tells their child. So I don't think for me, at least, it would like make me want to go into a specialty versus 
versus another. But I think for some people, though, it may in that being told that you are welcome in the specialty is very meaningful, right? And that is indeed perhaps more likely to happen if the time that you rotated in that specialty, you had a, a, a mentor who took ownership of you as a student and like mentored you. Yeah, there's some specialties that even if everybody was black, I wouldn't go into. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and whenever I have a student rotating with me, one thing I always tell them is, it's a, the most important thing is to find out what you don't like and don't, right. don't go into that. <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff out there that you'd be happy doing. Just make sure you're not in one of the ones that you won't be. Yeah. So I think the impact is it's not so much of a seeing a black attending is going to make somebody go into it, but I guess it's not having a black attending and then also not being welcomed or not, even not being, being told that, oh, you're never going to make it or people not showing enthusiasm or not mentoring you. The lack of black attendings is that's that as opposed to the presence of them. I, I, I don't know if I'm making a, a clear argument here that can impact you know, the, those trajectories is my guess. I mean, there is a, often an assumption that, oh, minority medical students are way more likely to go into primary care without investigating the root of it all, right? Like, sure, yes, we are more likely to go into primary care, but nobody knows whether when we came into med school, we, half of us were like, oh, I'm going to do plastic surgery or I'm going to do neurosurgery or whatever, right? But I would like for it to be studied whether during those clerkship experiences, the you know experiences of not feeling included, be it actively or passively, um, has made people more or less likely to say, well, bump that. I'm not going into insert specialty because like you said, those people were jerks or those people didn't include me or those people just never saw me as fitting with them. My opto, one of my opto faculty members at Yale, she's a black woman, Dr. Kristen Waniawu. She said when she was a resident, you know, she's a tiny black woman and everybody who walked in who was a tall white man, they would say, oh, he's going to retina. He just looks like he's going to retina. And she said, I'm going to retina, but people never ever supported the idea that she would be a retina surgeon. But she said, I'm going to do it from intrinsic motivation. And she did it. She's a great retina surgeon, but being barraged, with these assumptions that oh you're you're just you're just going to be a generalist although it's obviously it's great to be a generalist regardless of be it as in primary care or like a generalist in that surgical specialty it almost kind of robs you of your dreams sometimes you know to not be told that you can do it you can also do it yeah well max this is this has been a great conversation i really appreciate you taking a lot of time out of the, the busy student schedule and away from your studies to to have this conversation and 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 to put together the podcast because it's clearly clearly a lot of very important conversations that need to take place and, and I'm and I'm so glad that you found this platform. So where can people find us? Where can people find your podcast? Uh, so the podcast is Flip the Script. Uh, if you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, if you search for Flip the Script, Yale, I think there are a few things that show up as Flip the Script by itself. So it's the one with the Yale, blue Yale logo. It's because it's the Yale Broadcast Center that helps me with hosting. Uh, flip the script, Yale. It's easy to find on uh, on Twitter. The The handle is flip script pod. Uh, yeah, so check it out. So we'll, we'll include links to all that in the show notes because I certainly had trouble finding when I just looked for flip the script. And then the That's Yale right. logo <laughs> kept on popping up and it didn't make any sense. I was looking for yeah. your logo. So now yeah, yeah, that's now odd, right? Easier to find. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to have this discussion. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. 
He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.